From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. TikTok has lots of data on Americans, and some Colorado lawmakers say the app poses a serious threat. The national security concerns really stem from who could have access to that data, namely China. We'll hear why users may need to look elsewhere for viral videos and daily news. Then, is the extreme weather an anomaly or a new reality in the face of climate change? So you can actually get colder weather briefly and set record lows. And CPR's new podcast will take you deep into the natural world with stories about appreciating what we have and noticing what could be lost. Then came the day that my dad took the gun, walked into the orchard, and aimed at a robin. I'm Marty Jewell, and I've donated several cars to CPR. I donated my cars because, first of all, it was too much of a hassle to try and sell one. And I found the process of donating so much easier. Just fill out some paperwork online and wait for the tow truck. That was it. Donating my cars is the way I support the station. Donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Millions of people in the U.S. use the social media app TikTok to get up to speed on everything from dance moves to the latest news. But increasingly, members of Congress are worried that the app might also be a national security risk. And two Colorado lawmakers have been strong voices in that chorus. Joining me now to talk about this is CPR Washington reporter Caitlin Kim. Hey, Caitlin. Hi, Andrea. I think most people know TikTok from things like viral dances and silly (laughs) videos. But where does the national security worry come from? From the all-important thing to social media companies, your data, not just your name and birthday or search history, but your contacts, your biometric information, including face and voice prints. You know, this is a video app. But the national security concerns really stem from Who could have access to that data, namely China? The fear is the Chinese government could force ByteDance, which is a Chinese-owned company, and TikTok's parent company, to share the data with them. And then that information could be used to influence Americans or, as a head of the FBI testified last fall, to control software on millions of American devices. So what are lawmakers saying? What do they want to do? Well, it varies. Colorado's Ken Buck and Missouri Senator Josh Hawley, both Republicans, have introduced legislation to ban TikTok in the U.S. Buck says the app is a threat to privacy and national security. So I'm not saying that TikTok is too far to the left or TikTok is food far to the right or TikTok has content that is dangerous and needs moderating. I I don't care at all about the, the, the content. I think that having a Chinese Communist Party presence in this country on a platform like that is dangerous. And, you know, they're not the only ones who want the U.S. to break up with TikTok, so to speak. You know, there is a bipartisan bill led by Republican Senator Marco Rubio of Florida and independent Senator Angus King of Maine that would stop social media platforms from working in the U.S. if they are owned wholly or in part by foreign regimes deemed adversarial. You know, think China, Russia or Iran. So that would cover TikTok and potentially future apps in similar situations. Now, Representatives Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin and Raja Krishnamurthy of Illinois have introduced the House version of that bill. 
Okay, so banning an app that has tens of millions of users seems like a major thing to do. What are the chances of something like that passing? You know, there is a chance, and I think it's because there's national security worry on both sides of the aisle. Earlier this month, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a Democrat, said a ban should be looked at, and he said people on the Commerce Committee are doing just that. Now, the question, I think, is will it be a ban or something short of one? A bipartisan pair of senators wrote to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen saying there should be strict structural restrictions between TikTok's American operations and ByteDance. Now, the reason Yellen is involved is because she chairs the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. And because this is the government, there is an acronym, CIFIS, which is tasked to look at certain foreign investments in the U.S. and how they can impact national security. That committee's review of TikTok has been going on for over two years. And we also have to keep in mind all of this, all of this discussion is happening against a backdrop of growing tensions between the U.S. and China. Democratic Senator Michael Bennett has also come out swinging against TikTok. Are his concerns similar to what Buck's saying? Uh, Yes. You know, Bennett sits on the Senate Intelligence Committee, and he's also very concerned about the national security implications around who can access TikTok's user data. Now, legislation can sometimes take a long time to get done, so he's trying a different route. Bennett actually wrote to the heads of Apple and Google to urge them to pull TikTok from their app stores for all the reasons I mentioned and then some, including how social media impacts youth mental health. Now, recently, Bennett actually met with TikTok CEO Sho Chu, and he said it was a frank conversation, but he remains, quote, fundamentally concerned, unquote, that TikTok is subject to the dictates of the Chinese Communist Party and, he believes, poses an unacceptable risk to U.S. national security. What does TikTok say about all of this? You know, the company is trying to show it's not a threat. You know, a TikTok spokesperson told me the company has never shared U.S. user data with the Chinese government. The Chinese government has never asked for that data and, quote, nor would we share it if asked to do so, unquote. You know, they say Congress should explore solutions to their security concerns in a way that won't essentially censor the voices of millions of Americans who use the app. They're looking at the CIFIS process. You know, they say they've worked out a plan which includes government and independent oversight to ensure there are no backdoors into TikTok that can be used to access data or manipulate the app. Now, TikTok will also try and make its case in front of Congress. The CEO, Mr. Chu, who is Singaporean, is set to actually testify in front of the House Energy and Commerce Committee on March 23rd. There is one Coloradan on that committee, Democratic Representative Diana DeGette. Well, I imagine a lot of TikTok users in the U.S. will be waiting to hear what happens. Caitlin, thanks so much. Thank you. CPR Washington reporter Caitlin Kim. When it comes to weather, you might say there's a recency bias. We tend to think the most recent storm was particularly bad. All the snow and cold of late may feel that way to some Coloradans. So to add some perspective, Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson keeps tabs on the immediate picture and has the long view, too. Here's his regular conversation about climate and weather with Ryan Warner. My own experience with Colorado weather only goes back about 17 years. But it sure feels like this winter, the cold, the snow, the ice have been more reminiscent of the Midwest. Um, I also spent some time there. But am I off in that assessment? 
No, I think you're right on with it. Uh, I'm originally from Madison, Wisconsin, and the weather that we've had since uh, right around Christmas is really the reason that most people leave the Midwest to get away from it. And <laughs> we've been stuck with it here in the Denver area. Well, what's going on? What's the trend here? It's just a winter. I mean, that has had frequent storms, a little more cold weather. But it seems like every Wednesday we seem to get a storm system that comes in. And that is just a matter of coincidence. Uh, we looked at it a little bit with the National Weather Service, and it has been a rather repeating pattern, but it's just a matter of the way the storms have moved across the nation this year. Oh, that's fascinating. Why don't we hopscotch around the state a bit? How do snow totals look this winter so far? Well, Denver officially, which is taken out of DIA, we're a little over 40 inches for the season, which is about six inches above average. Okay. Uh, at Central Park, the old Stapleton site, just under 40 inches. So uh, the storms happen to hit a little bit stronger out toward the airport. Fort Collins has had about uh, almost 30. Alamos has only had 14. Colorado Springs has had 30 inches so far for the season, but Pueblo has only had 16 inches. And uh, Grand Junction's had 20, which is about a half a foot above normal. Oh. The big ones, though, Crested Butte has had 137 inches of snow, and Steamboat has had 165 so far. 165, and that two is above average? That's uh, almost two feet above average, and that's why Steamboat's going to stay open longer this year. That hasn't happened, uh, I think, since the late 1980s that they've had a season that they've stayed open longer. Uh, and so we get an extra week to ski at the boat. <laughs> uh, not to get ahead of ourselves, Mike, but what is all this bode for spring and summer? Well, it's been great news. I'm looking right now at the uh, state snowpack, and we're at about 120% of average with still two of our snowiest months to come. And so if uh, we continue to have this good snowy pattern, which I, I agree, I'm a little tired of it too, but it's great for our water supply. It'll be really, really good news. Now, as far as the Colorado River filling up Lake Powell or Lake Mead, it would take many winters like this to get to where we can reverse that because there's 40 million people drawing water out of there across the southwest and the water levels are historically low about as low as when they first began filling those reservoirs it also makes me wonder like it's good to have a, a healthy snowpack right but the question of how quickly it melts off how quickly the snowpack becomes rivers if you will is also a question here isn't it with climate change in a warmer world, we are seeing that the meltout happens faster and it also soaks into the ground more. We get more evaporation. And so things have changed a little bit. Even a snowy winter now does not do the same type of good as it would prior to the world being a warmer place. There are weather terms we hear a lot, but may not fully understand. As this last winter storm arrived, uh, Mike, I saw the barometric pressure falling. I wondered if it was the cause of a headache I had. And I wonder, could you explain barometric pressure to us? Like, what, what the pressure on what? It's the weight of the world on your shoulders and on your head. It's the weight of the atmosphere, if you will, pushing down. And uh, when there is a low pressure system, that would be a little swirl, a little eddy in the atmosphere. And so there's actually a little less air pressure pushing down on you. There are some theories that the reason you get the headache is because that means that your blood vessels are less constricted because the air pressure is lower. Mm. So you get more blood going into your brain and you, you think more about your problems and you probably get more of a headache. And when it's a high pressure, 
uh, that would actually constrict the blood vessels going into your brain and would give you more of a high or a giddy feeling because you're getting a little less oxygen. Is it fair to say the pressure was changing substantially as that storm rolled in? When it changes rapidly, some people are, are very much affected by that, yeah. Yeah, okay. And that would have happened in this, this last winter's storm. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And that's also why you sometimes see changes in the way that animals behave when a storm is coming in, because they can sense that change in pressure, whether it be uh, uh, mammals on the ground or birds in the air. All right. Climate researchers are using the term doom loop, doom loop, to describe a kind of scary tension. And the yeah. tension is that nations are now dealing with the high costs of climate change. So wildfire, famine. And as a result, they may be forced to dial back investments in cleaner energy. Uh, I shared an article, which we'll also link to in our podcast. But I wonder, Mike, if you would care to reflect on doom loop, the notion that, uh, in a way, climate change hobbles the efforts to fight it, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. And it, it's also one of the uh, things that happen in terms of people's stage of accepting the truth about climate change, because there's a lot of things that I hear, the you know, climate's always changed. Well, yes, it does always change, and that's why we understand what is happening right now. Or we can't trust the scientists and the media. Well, trust me, if you go up to the parking lot at NCAR, you don't see a lot of Mercedes and Jaguars up there. So if these people are making a whole lot of money off of uh, some type of uh, fraud about climate change, they're not investing it very well. <laughs> one, of the, one of the last things that you get is, oh, it's just too expensive to do anything about it. And the fact of the matter is we've known that uh, the impact of increasing carbon dioxide is warming the planet. It's just basic thermodynamics. It's a heat balance. If you trap more heat from escaping into space, the planet warms up. Well, carbon dioxide is a heat-trapping gas. We're adding that into the atmosphere. So, yeah, it's going to cause the planet to warm up. Doesn't mean we won't have winter. Winter's a season. Doesn't mean we won't have a storm because a snowstorm is just weather. It's a storm. But overall, the planet's warming up. As it does, we get all of the problems that we should have been addressing for the last four decades. Instead, there was a fairly uh, pronounced climate change denial campaign, and that has damaged the ability of us to fix this problem sooner. It's a bit like going to the doctor after you've smoked for 40 years and say, can't you fix me? Well, yeah, you should have stopped smoking 40 years ago. Hmm. So, for instance, they talk about carbon sequestration that we could, well, we can put it all back in the ground. It's not going to work very well because one part per million of carbon dioxide weighs 8 billion tons in our atmosphere. Okay. At the best we could hope for, it'd be $100 a ton to put it back in the ground. That would be just to put back into the ground what we put into the air every single year would cost. The global cost would be $2.5 trillion just to stay even with our current emissions. Wow. So it's uh, there's no, no way we're going to sequester our way back into doing it. The best thing to do is to stop lighting this stuff on fire. And frankly, my sense of it, Ryan, is that um, a lot of our leadership is looking at this problem as if there's just a pot boiling over on the stove when, in fact, the problem is the whole house is on fire. And this should be our number one priority moving forward is to globally come up with is to stop adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. So often you and I talk about the difference between climate and weather. Right. Um, I, I do note that Denver set a record Wednesday when the official thermometer for the city dropped to minus seven degrees. The previous record was set 110 years ago, 1913. Mm -hmm. 
can can we say weather extremes get more extreme in the face of climate change? As we add more energy into the climate system with uh, the increase in carbon dioxide, the increase in global heat, it's going to cause things to, uh, and as far as weather, to be more extreme. Droughts become drier, floods become wetter, heat waves become hotter, and there is even some research that shows as the polar regions warm, it causes the polar vortex, that really cold air that generally stays trapped far to the north, to wobble more. And so we can actually get cold waves once in a while that will oh. drop into unusual places. And so you can actually get colder weather briefly and set record lows. But by far, we see way more record highs being set than record lows. Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson speaking about the intersection of weather and climate with Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Thank you for supporting CPR. Every day, your membership is put to good work serving communities across our state. You ensure that news and music remain freely available to Coloradans everywhere. Your generosity helps make it all possible. The natural world and our place in it. That's what CPR's new podcast, Terra Firma, explores. Each episode pairs sounds collected by outdoor sound artist Jacob Job from Loveland with stories by C. Marie Furman, a Colorado-born indigenous poet and writer. We're going to talk about the project in a moment. But first, here's Elk Song, which takes us to Rocky Mountain National Park. On a late afternoon in autumn, when the sun bends the shadows and gives a gold tip to the crowns of dug fir and lodgepole, I walk into the forest with my cello. I sit on a stump whose rings hold the song of the Arapaho and Ute of Mexican spotted owl. of thunder, and more recently, the noise of industry. I open my knees and bring my cello to my chest. Once live trees, the cello and the stump, both with their own voice. Now, one holds me, I hold the other. I am hopeful that the young pines might gather my notes within their skins and hold them there, like stories for the next generation and perhaps another after that. My fingers press the thickest strings down and I pull horsehair across the hollow and draw the sound waiting therein. First, G sings soft and low, the pitch rising through D, then a slow, high A. It's clunky, bellowing. I am out of tune, out of practice. Yet, something I recognize fills the air. A memory comes through the trees, 
and the turning aspen leaves, a cry like the song of the bull elk. And I lay the bow down. When I was a little girl, I was given a BB gun. I grew up rural, ranch raised. It was a rite of passage. My father set up targets for my practice, and I sent hundreds of BBs through water-filled milk jugs and into plywood backdrops. I would pump air into the rifle and then fire. My aim became sharp. Then came the day that my dad took the gun, walked into the orchard, and aimed at a robin, its beak holding a plump red pie cherry. Pop. Pump. After he left and went back into the house, I gathered the small body from the weeds beneath the tree. I held the robin in both hands, placed it to my ear. There was silence. Last December, I shot an elk. Pop. Whoomp. One sound taking another. That evening, tired and still ungrounded from the act of killing, I thought of an evening under a thicket of cottonwood, the leaves making a soft rattle, and then the bugle of an elk. I turned to my partner and said, I have taken a song from the world. And despite my promises of living a life worthy of the elk, I was again the girl beneath the cherry tree with the bleeding robin and regret in my hands. It is said that by 2050, we will lose one million species. How many lives is that? How many songs? How many autumn calls? How much of that loss will I be responsible for? I think of the sounds that fill this forest. Will they be here when I am an old woman? We have forgotten the wild and know only our own sound.
I rise and hold my cello by the neck, angry for the memory it inspired. But the cello is as blameless as the BB gun and the rifle. I'm the one that makes it silent or sing. I take the bow in hand, rest the instrument against my body, and begin the act of tuning. Perhaps the life worthy of the elk is a life returning some beauty to the wild. Here, the A starts to sound like a chirp or a whistle. The C, something like the cry of a grateful human. We've been listening to CPR's new podcast about the outdoors and how humans interact with the natural world. We're going to hear now from the two people who create the podcast, C. Marie Furman, a Colorado-born indigenous poet and writer, and Jacob Job, a sound artist from Loveland. We just listened to the episode Elk Song, which takes place in Rocky Mountain National Park. The story comes full circle from the day Marie's father killed a robin with a BB gun to when she herself killed an elk. I asked Marie what she hopes the listener will come away with after hearing the story. I'm very concerned about the loss of the sounds that we have in wild places, but I'm also very aware of the part that I take in that. I hope that the listener is able to examine themselves, their own surroundings, um, what they've done in their lives, and what sounds have meant to them. Certainly those early sounds of Robin are still so much a part of my life and remind me so much of place, of where I grew and where I belong. And to lose that would be to lose so much of my identity and to think of the animals I've hunted and the animals that I've killed for other reasons, with a car or because um, at, at the time I thought they were a varmint. And I think of the sounds that I've taken from the planet and the ways that other voices, human or greater than, have been taken from the planet. It frightens me deeply. It scares me. And to think that we can lose part of that soundtrack that has been the soundtrack to the lives of all of our ancestors is something I think we should all be concerned about. So I hope it has several effects. I hope that it inspires memory and remembering of sounds and how important sounds are to us. I also hope it inspires thought about what we're doing to take away habitat for those sounds to live in and what we can do to ensure that, as good ancestors, we're able to leave those songs and sounds behind from bird song to wolf song to our own beautiful songs in concert with and not in place of the wild sounds that we hear as well. I understand that you write stories and then you work to match what you've written with sounds Jacob has gathered. Talk about how that works, Marie. So when we first started the podcast, I would listen to um, the sounds that Jacob had gathered 
and bring a story to those. And that was successful in some cases. It became harder to do because I was trying so hard to be true to the sound. That's not to say that the stories are untrue, but it was almost like I was writing to the sound instead of letting the sound be its own voice, have its own agency in the story and um, kind of be a companion to the story instead of what the story was about. So as we continued to do this, we found that it was best if I wrote the story and then in studio or um, Jacob himself would listen to the story and find sounds to match that. So there isn't always um, the beings that I talk about in the stories in the sounds or vice versa, but they complement each other in a way that fill out both. And, and Jacob, we just heard elk intermingled with Seymour's story. And I wonder how you got such clear sound of elk bugling. I mean, so I have um, a background in studying ecology and I have a background in hunting with my dad growing up. And so I think between those two things, I learned how to understand animal behavior really well. So each year I spend days by myself living as my wife likes to say, amongst elk, as I like to say, amongst elk. And so I find herds and I, I just place myself and my microphones in places where I anticipate they'll move through. And I just sit and wait silently with camouflage, playing the wind perfectly. So they move through me, sometimes within yards of me. And they have no idea, or at least I perceive they have no idea. I am mean, sometimes I think they're just so caught up in, in the rut with each other that, uh, even if they knew I was there, they wouldn't care. So it's just a, it's a mix of patience and understanding of animal behavior. Are there other sounds that are particularly hard to collect or that you really have to know what you're doing in order to get the best quality? So I like to say there really is very little magic in just placing a microphone out in nature and gathering recording. That's fairly easy, and I think anybody could do that. Where the trick comes in is, again, being able to interpret the land, the species, having the patience to read it and anticipate where those moments are going to happen. So for me, it's all about scouting that out, understanding who's sharing the landscape with me, what sounds to anticipate at what times of day. And so that sort of puts me in that best position. And so the, the most challenging aspect of it, honestly, is just finding times where there isn't noise pollution jets flying over, cars driving by, people's voices sometimes, although most of the time I'm well off trail when I do my work. I can have awesome things happen, but jets fly over constantly and cars drive by constantly. That's just a challenge. And you have this huge library of sound, uh, which this podcast draws from. Is there something about the way you think or listen to the world that started you on this journey? Um, I'm sure there is. You know, I'm constantly thinking about why or how I ended up in this place doing this work. And I think going back to a very young age, I had an interest in sounds. I, the very first recording I made, 14 years old, got up really early. Everybody on the house was asleep. And I had a boombox and a blank cassette tape. Um, and I heard a bird singing outside. And I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was beautiful. And I just popped in that tape and hit record. And so... I think there was an interest there from the start that where sound for some reason just moves me maybe in ways that it doesn't for other people. But the answer is, I think there's something about all of us 
we know that our sense of smell um, probably is our strongest in conjuring up emotion and memories, but our sense of hearing is not far behind. And so I think it's, in evolutionarily, um, our sense of hearing developed well before our sense of sight. And so it's ingrained within us to listen and to hear with purpose. And so I think I just tapped into something that evolution laid down long ago. See, Marie, you have an indigenous background and you refer to your ancestors in some of the episodes. How much of your love of nature and of story is rooted in that background? I love that question because I can't answer it. There was never a time when nature wasn't part of the story of me. I can't separate myself from nature or nature from myself. So whether that's the indigenous background, whether it's the way that my parents raised me, I was adopted, I was raised by white parents in Northern Colorado, whether that's inherent in all of our DNA, I really can't say. I know that through learning indigenous language, I have grown closer to where I live now. Um, Understanding traditional ecological knowledge has grown me closer to the land as well, but so has science. And so has pure experience of being on the land. So to say that one informs the other, I I think I cannot, but I can say that they all are part of me. Jacob, by collecting sound and sharing it with people, I wonder if you have any messages for folks about appreciating nature and really how to best appreciate it. Yeah, that's a... uh philosophical question I struggle with because I don't want to tell people how they should experience the outdoors. I know how I experience it and I know how I like to experience it. And it's a very, it's with a very light touch. You know, part of this work is intended to connect people to these places, to these stories, to these ideas and thoughts. And that's great. And if it encourages people to form their own relationships with the outdoors, you know, that's a success. But I think there's another step there that's trying to come through with this project. And it's that, yeah, form the connection, but be mindful about that connection. Be mindful about your impact um, in those natural spaces so we can do it in a way with respect to those who come after us. So they have those opportunities as well. And Seamory, we're going to listen to Snowy Starry Horse Ride. It's another episode in the collection. It takes place in Collegiate Peaks, Colorado. And can you tell us about this one before we play it? Yeah. So I had come home one evening and it was, it was so cold. It was bitter cold. And um, I'd blanketed my horses and went back inside and was looking out at the starlight and the sky. And because it was a night that was just not inviting due to the cold, but so inviting due to the clear sky and the moonlight and snow and the fact that no one else was out there, I dressed warmly and went out and and blanketed my horse and and I got on dock and I leaned forth and, and, and wrapped my arms around his neck and we rode out into that field and, um, experiencing nature on horseback is always so different because you get to be silent. You get to let the animal carry you. And often that doesn't disrupt the other animals and you get to experience through their body, what they're experiencing through the sounds they hear, through the delight, through just their 
life and their reactions to being out there. Um, that stuck with me. And it's one of those places or those memories that I go back to when I need to escape. See, Marie, thanks so much. Thank you. And Jacob, thanks for being with us. Yeah, you're welcome. Anytime. And now we're going to listen to Snowy Starry Horse Ride. It is after 10 p.m. when I lead Doc from the barn. The old gray gelding, growing wider each year, matches the landscape we are walking into. All day it snowed, but the storm passed, the sky cleared, and into it rose a full, bright moon. It was this I could not resist. A moonlit snowscape, late December, beneath Colorado's collegiate peaks. Doc lowers his head, and I guide the bridle over his ears and lay the reins on his neck. I place a blanket on his back, then pull myself astride him. He is a gentle horse, a good companion. We leave the bit saddle and barn behind as he carries me into the moonlit meadow. The day had been filled with screens, with words, words on lists, words in emails, words from people in phone calls, and meetings. The noise of the day, even those domestic, had reduced me, buried me under demands, eroded me with questions whose answers I lost, or answers that simply didn't matter. All afternoon, I dreamed about the time when I could turn it all off, go to bed, close my eyes, fall into a dream that was nothing like my waking hours. But even as I pulled the blind down against the moon's light, it pressed through, as if promising a different way to see. At the top of the horizon in front of me is Engineer Peak. Behind us is the town of Buena Vista, not far away, the Arkansas River is frozen at her edges. The bear who visited my cabin this fall is hibernating in a grass-lined den. But the bobcat that stopped to peer in the sliding glass door two nights ago is awake. Her thick fur and paws are quiet as any in this range. She is made for this season. Doc's hooves make the only sound. The snow is fresh and the air is cold. His steps are more creak than crunch. If stars had a sound, I wonder, 
Would it be like this? Or would they emit something lighter? Distance belies their immensity. But the closest stars glitter in the moonlit sky. The tops of the peaks are shining like lighthouses, and though reaching them is an impossibility, I ride toward them as if it is not. At the end of the meadow, Doc steps into a young aspen grove. The limbs are bare of their leaves now, but I recall a few weeks before when they were thick with gold light and how standing among them, I felt their radiance, even warmth. In July, when their leaves were green and their bark was cool, my dogs and I took a respite from the heat. As we weave through the trees, the dark whorls look like eyes watching, and I recall a story about how Aspen came to be. A pair of lovers, already committed to others, would sneak into the forest to be together. When they were found out, they were banished to the woods as Aspen. There, rooted in place, untouching, they were given eyes and forced to stare at each other for eternity. But that is not the story these Aspen tell. Their dark eyes seem filled with wonder, contentment, and compassion as they look at the meadow, mountains, and even me. Doc slows to a stop. I turn and look back at the field, the peaks, and the sky. I have read that in these moments, when experiencing such vastness, others feel small. But that is not how I feel. I lie forward and put my cheek against Doc's neck. I smell his rawness, that combination of earth and sweat, and look through the stream of his breath at the tracks we left to get here. It is not ego nor knowing my humanness that makes me feel large. It is this a meadow of new snow, mountains whose names I do not know, the tops of trees that only rain and seraphim have touched, and a sky whose blue-black depths on this winter night inspire wonder. It is silence. It is a landscape that reminds me there is more than words and jobs and demands it reminds me of the possibility that within me lies a similar, vast, open, quiet wilderness. Here, I am not reduced by the vastness. I am enlarged by it. I do not need to escape. I simply need to step outside. Doc exhales, and the cloud of his breath rises into the night. Somewhere, an owl calls, Ooh. 
And the vastness becomes larger still. Terra Firma, CPR's new podcast about nature and our place in it. All of the outdoor sound in the podcast comes from an extensive audio library that Jacob Job has gathered over the years. See Marie Furman creates the stories. You can listen to Terra Firma at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Cripple Creek is celebrating the return of an annual tradition that was put on pause for the last two years because of the COVID pandemic. The Cripple Creek Ice Festival brings in dozens of ice carvers on five teams from around the country who create massive sculptures on the city's main street. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce joined thousands of visitors taking in this winter carnival. The shape is a bit crude to begin with. I mean, obviously, it's getting sawed out of an ice block. But still, it does not take long to recognize what Eric Lally is going for. Cutthroat trout. It's the state fish. The 23-year-old here at the Ice Fest with his team from upstate New York still thinks of himself as an apprentice ice carver. Did you consider yourself an artist beforehand? Not really. I play a little bit of guitar, but like I never thought. I was like, I was like, ah, it's, like, it's kind of hard to make money doing something artistic. You just never know what surprises life will bring. Now he's sanding and rounding the edges of his ice trout, part of this towering translucent monument to Colorado state animals. You got a bighorn sheep on a pile of rocks. The trout will go in a river near a turtle. There's going to be a lark on perched on that log. And then over there, we're doing a big, from a head to tail, is going to about 20 feet, a stegosaurus. Welcome to the chaos. Clarissa Murray, Destination Marketing Coordinator for the City of Cripple Creek. There's a lot of hype around bringing this festival back, and all of our carvers are friendly and are working together, which is so heartwarming to see that even though they're in a competition against each other, they will be friends and work together to make this event work. Mm -hmm. I I mean, they're all holding chainsaws, so important they get along. Oh, definitely. Mm. Over the nine days, each carving team gets two shipments of ice blocks from a vendor in Ohio. Each shipment weighs in at 18,000 pounds. They're carving aliens and donkeys, modern art-inspired polygons, high arches of sparkling sheet music. And a slide, a curving slide made entirely of ice. It's not very steep and Even with a push, riders don't go very fast. It doesn't matter. The slide has a constant line, and everyone seems to be enjoying the novelty. Almost everyone. Not nine-year-old Ayanna Atkinson. Tell me more. Why no ice slide? Because it's going to freeze my bottom. I mean, fair enough. It's a cold slide. What if they hand you a piece of cardboard? It looks like the other kids are using pieces of cardboard to go down. What do you think about that? No. Okay. Atkinson's mom, Melanie Miltier, came from Colorado Springs with a friend and both their kids. She says it's her first time coming to Cripple Creek outside of trips to the casinos years ago. She says it's nice to have a different reason to visit. It's great to have these kinds of festivals and places that normally are for adults. And now you can have kids, you can make a, a family fun day of it. That's not stopping a lot of festival goers from popping into the casinos. 
and locals too, like Sean O'Donnell and Jessica Monday. We love seeing all the people here too. It's good yeah. for the town. How are you guys doing with your play today? You know, we've had better days, but we're not doing <laughs> terrible, so. We're up eight bucks right now. Yeah. Amongst the ice sculptures, vendor booths are offering many of the comfort foods and trinkets found at a typical summer street fair. The brave, like Barry Ryan, try their hand at some karaoke. Happy Together by the Turtles. Uh, See, I'm 69 years old and I can still sing a little bit. Is that a, a standby for you? Uh, that, that is, that's a standby. And amongst it all, the sawing, the sanding, and the stacking of ice goes on and on. You know, some people go to the gym and flip tires and swing sledgehammers. We move 100-pound blocks of ice 12 feet off the ground. Keith Martin of the Durango-based Snice, snow and ice carving, stands high overhead on a pallet suspended by a skid steer. A curved wall is starting to form. It'll go on to be a Death Star from Star Wars. One of the many frozen art installations emerging from the ice in Cripple Creek on display through Sunday. Dan Boyce, CPR News. Thanks for joining us today. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.